Welcome to the Library Safety and Security Podcast with Dr. Steve Albrecht. I'm the very same Dr. Steve Albrecht, and this podcast is sponsored by Library 2.0 and produced by the founder of Library 2.0, Steve Hargadon. My topic for this hour is restraining orders that you may have to get against certain kind of patrons with behavioral problems. So let's talk about the behavior that would get a patron to the point where he or she would need a restraining order from your library. And you can imagine that these behaviors have to be pretty severe because at this point in time, the patron has not followed the code of conduct, not followed our opportunities or our chances to give this person to change, and we've had repeated warnings, uh, even maybe kickouts for some span of time. A temporary restraining order is one of those things that is not a bulletproof shield, but it serves a purpose. It helps libraries and library directors and even the police to enforce consequences. Without consequences, as you know, there are no changes in behavior. And sometimes people need consequences if their behavior is violent or threatening or harassing or physically or sexually or racially harassing. So let's talk about the concept of a temporary restraining order. The police have the ability to give something called an EPO or an emergency protective order right on the spot. They can fill out the paperwork and serve it to the person as they're sitting in handcuffs at the police station or on their way to jail or even at jail. An emergency protective order is oftentimes used in cases of extreme violence or in those situations involving domestic violence and uh, typically an employee of the library and the domestic violence perpetrator who comes to the library. An emergency protective order has the same kind of weight as a, as a temporary restraining order once the person has gone to court to get the order enforced. Sometimes we use the phrase stay away order in your state, it may be called that, or we call it a TRO or a temporary restraining order. And the temporary restraining order part is, is not actually true. Most restraining orders expire. In some states, it could be three years, some states up to five years. Um, the examples in, in each state vary. So if you're going to get a restraining order, it's useful to look up online for your particular state and see what the language is, and whether it's called a stay away order or a TRO or something like that, and what the time span is that it's typically enforced for. When you ha have to go to court after the initial order has been, has been issued by a judge, then we go back to court typically uh, 10 days, 14 days, in some cases 20 to 25 days depending on the state, where there will be an official hearing with a judge and where the perpetrator can show up, the person who the order is against, the restrained party as it is called, and usually somebody from the library or uh, the library's representative, which is typically the district attorney, city attorney, or representative for your particular um, state uh, or, or local attorney, uh, however you define it in your, in your town or your city or your county. The court hearing is the opportunity for that person who is being restrained to explain to the judge why he or she does not need the order and why the order should not be served upon him or her. Obviously, if this person does not show up for the restraining order hearing, uh, the, the order will be granted unless it's, you know, obviously unreasonable and not been validated by, by evidence. Uh, the, usually the, the uh, judge will grant the order. So the order itself is, becomes something that, that has to be served upon the person. Let's say, for example, that you file for a restraining order, and sometimes we can get patrons um, to file for a restraining order against someone who is bothering them if we want to give them some careful counsel in any kind of domestic violence situation they can oftentimes go to legal aid in their community and get some help from, from legal aid or from pro bono attorneys working on these types of situations for free. When you think about the need for a restraining order, it's typically a stay-away order that says you not come in contact with our facility or these 
this person to be restrained uh, cannot come in contact with the victim. That's up to 300 feet away in terms of physical space, no phone calls, no electronic con communication whatsoever, no texts, no emails, nothing, no physical, verbal contact. You can't write a note on a rock and leave it on their front doorstep, nothing like that. Those are all violations of the order. So when we look at restraining orders as a as a fix, it's it's not correct to call it a permanent restraining order because it usually expires, again, three to five years, but it can be one of those things that really helps enforce consequences as we look at this patron's behavior. So think about how bad a person's behavior would have to be in the library to get a restraining order. I've helped libraries do this around the country, and it's usually a pretty big step. There's usually physical violence against somebody, a staff member or another patron, and especially repeated physical violence, repeated threats against staff or patrons, sexual harassment on a repeated basis, racial harassment on a repeated basis, even stalking behavior on a repeated basis or on a one-time basis if it's severe enough for any of those. Then we look at, at patrons who steal from the facility or panhandle on a regular basis or disrupt uh, the facility with their, with their mental illness issues or their, their just threatening violent behavior type of things where the police no longer have a tool to take the person out of the library and, and give them a stay away warning or a trespass warning. Uh, sometimes these keep coming in. The value of a restraining order is not, again, it's, a bullet, it's not a bulletproof shield for the, for the person on the, um, you know, re, who's restraining that party, but it is something that the police can use to enforce consequences. When you look at the restraining order, it is a civil order that comes from a judge, and so when the person, in, in effect, is in contempt of court on the judge. And so any violation of the order where the person shows up or calls or texts or appears at the facility trying to contact the victim anything like that is bound to be a contempt of court order which the judge can have this person put inside jail for some span of time usually you know until they make bail but it's it's oftentimes a way to break this cycle this sometimes stalking cycle or the cycle of of repeated interactions or involvement with this person in the library so if you look at the restraining order from a enforcement standpoint it is a misdemeanor and it does not necessarily have to be committed in the police presence once they get there and they see the person is there in violation of the order they're going to check on two things before they make the misdemeanor arrest a has it been served this person has received a copy of the order now they don't have to have it on them they don't have to have the order if they're the restrained party sometimes people do i've seen that but many times we just have to have proof that it was served, and the way that happens is usually a process server who's a, a civilian process server, a company that, that the library hires to serve the order. They do many orders like this, you know, kick-out orders and, and all kinds of subpoenas and things like that. And then the second one is that sometimes the sheriff's department in your particular county, or if you have a marshal's or a constable's service, they can, they can serve it as well. Once they serve it, they go back to the court. They file it as proof that it has been served. And at that point, the person is under the mandate of the, of the order. And the other issue that needs to be verified by the police at the time is, that as the order on, still on file, is it valid and is not expired? So again, some of these, these things expire after, after three years or five years. Has the order still, still uh, ex invalid? It's not expired. <clears throat> Sometimes people go to court and they'll have a temporary restraining order. And then by the, by the time the temporary restraining order is granted and they come back to a court, a second court hearing uh, up to you know 10 days to two weeks to three weeks for the for the court hearing sometimes they've resolved the differences with the person and they no longer need the order to be made made permanent so it's dropped at that point so let's talk about dropping the order 
a restraining order from somebody who doesn't want it to be in play anymore. Well, let's look at kind of the reverse first, where somebody, let's say for the sake of discussion, has a restraining order against an, uh, somebody in a domestic violence situation. And let's say, for, for example, one of your employees in the library has a restraining order against her boyfriend or ex-husband. And so they've gone to court, and the husband's made his claim as to why he shouldn't have one, and the victim has made her claim as to why she needs one. That's typically comes across through a police report, photographs, injuries, uh, um, texts, uh, examples of emails that are threatening, things that put this person in a position of real fear of injury or death. And that's the usual criteria for a restraining order. It, it's most often granted in those situations where the person says, I'm in fear for my life. If this person continues to come near me at the one time they're going to come and, and harm me or kill me, that's what the restraining order is for, to keep them away. Now, again, it's not a bulletproof shield. It's not a perfect way to do this, but it helps a lot in terms of enforcing consequences. So let's say for the sake of discussion that the library employee has a restraining order against her, her boyfriend or husband, and he calls the library and says, baby, uh, I have bagels and coffee. I want to come out and let's sit in the parking lot and talk about our relationship. I'm going to be a good man for you, and I know you have this order, but I, I'm just asking you to, you know, to waive it for today, and I want to come and talk to you in the, in the library parking lot, and we'll, we'll try to make our relationship work. And she says, nope, you, you can't do that. I have an order against you. And he says, well, you know, if you waive it, I can come, and we'll sit and have a conversation. And he continues to talk to her, and she finally agrees. And she goes out to the parking lot, and she sits in his car, and, and he starts talking, and, and pretty soon it's, it's evident that they're going to end up in an argument, and she leaves the car and rushes inside and is fearful and calls the police. The police get there, and they find out that there is a restraining order and has been served, and it's still valid, and she says, you know, he, he showed up, and I met with him, but then it got confrontational, and I got afraid for my safety. I feared for my life. I came inside and called you. And they go to him and they say, you know, you have an order against you. And he says, hey, she, she waived it. You know, she told me I could come in. And so I showed up and, you know, the, the restraining order is not in effect because, because she said no. Well, in that situation, guess what the police do? They arrest him. They take him to jail. She cannot waive the restraining order on a case-by-case on -case basis. If she wants to go back to court and stop it, she has to file the paperwork and go to the judge and say, I no longer want to have the restraining order in place. But in those situations, if the victim says, well, I let him show up or I let him come over or I let him call me or something like that, <clears throat> he's still in violation of the order and is subject to arrest because the police are not the ones that told him. The judge is the one that told him. The police simply enforce the order as it stands. So you may have a situation where a domestic violence victim is an employee of yours. And the question is, do we give this person, male or female, male victim, female victim, same-sex sexual orientation, any of the combinations we see in domestic violence concerns, do we give this person the advice that they should get a restraining order in, in all situations? And the answer is no. When I was a DV detective in San Diego, I handled 1,500 cases in that time span. And in those days, and this was the 90s, we were really kind of stuck on restraining orders as one of our primary enforcement tools, one of our leverage tools. <clears throat> and what we figured out was sometimes it makes situations instantly worse. The person is not being bothered by this, by this individual. The library employee is not being bothered by her ex-husband or ex-boyfriend, not being bothered by somebody who, who wants to come in and threaten her. And sometimes people say, well, you know, you got a divorce and he's had some, some issues before. Maybe you should get a restraining order. Even though the person has not been problematic, once you go through that process of getting the restraining order and you go to the court, court hearing and the person gets served, guess what happens? Sometimes this individual will say, 
I wasn't bothering you before, but now I'm going to start bothering you. Now you gave me a reason to bother you. So in my consulting practice, and sometimes when I look at these cases, I say, does the restraining order, with the likelihood of this thing being enforced, will it make things worse, or will it make things better or safer for the victim? If the person has not been bothering this, this individual, then let sleeping dogs lie. Don't get the restraining order and start a confrontation that was not actually happening before because it may start up and, and get more dangerous as the situation goes on. I like restraining orders as that step in a process, whether it's a library patron's uh, domestic violence partner or <clears throat> the library um, patron who is, is problematic or the library employee's domestic violence partner. I like it in those situations where it is the next logical step because this person is getting worse they're escalating their behavior, their situation is, is now more dangerous to the person involved, and that we use the restraining order as a leverage tool to get this person arrested and put in jail. And sometimes when we look at the consequences of this person going to jail, that doesn't even stop them. Sometimes they come out of jail and they're just as furious as before, and they drive right back over, or Uber or a cab, right back over to the victim's workplace or the victim's house and confront them again and get rearrested. I arrested a guy once, twice in one police shift for a restraining order violation. So sometimes the consequences of the restraining order are not severe enough, and the police have to come up with ways to put this person in jail for other means like being drunk or high on drugs or having a warrant or being in possession of a weapon or something like that, which will actually have a, a little bit of consequences so the victim can come up with a safety plan for himself or herself. If we look at those situations where the library patron is the one that gets the order, the difficult part sometimes is getting these people served. <clears throat> the process server will attempt to serve this person three to five times based on you know, what you, you pay them for the fee, and sometimes they cannot do it. Um, this is typical in situations where people are homeless or, or have kind of a, a transient lifestyle where they're not typically around all the time where there is no address for the process server to use. So whether it's a sheriff or a constable or a marshal or the private process server, it can be difficult to get this person served. Now, sometimes the police can do it if they show up in an intersection with the time and the person shows up at the library to cause problems and the police are there. Um, if they can get a copy of the order, they can serve the person at that time. But it's difficult sometimes to do that. If the order's not been served, then it's not valid. And so then we have to come up with, with other ways, other legal ways, like service by publication or something like that, that typically the lawyers can explain for you to do. When you look at, at the issue of calling the police for the restraining order, there's kind of a problem in law enforcement where some cities really have a strong response to restraining order calls as a police call and some don't. And so we've seen situations around the country where the police are kind of haphazard in their response to restraining orders and as a result the victim is at risk if they don't show up and try to make an arrest or at least try to look for the guy that's, that's being restrained. So in my perfect world, the police will get called to the location, they will show up, they will write the restraining order violation report, which is typically a misdemeanor penal code report, a copy of that gets sent back to the court, and we're trying to prove a pattern of behavior. Um, sometimes that if the police keep showing up and the person is not there because they're smart enough to run off every time the, the victim says, or the library says, I'm going to call the, call the police, then we get into the sort of cat or mouse game where the police have to catch the guy at the scene. It can be difficult. In some jurisdictions, not all, uh, the police can make an arrest for what is called a stale misdemeanor or the absence of a stale misdemeanor, which is the person, um, they, let's say they write a restraining order report on Monday, they can arrest the person up on Tuesday or Wednesday for the restraining order violation if they see him walking down the street or they stop him in a car or they go to this person's house and they're out on the street in front of their house. So that's not always a, a common thing, but in some 
jurisdictions, it is possible for the police to make a misdemeanor arrest uh, up to two days afterwards because it is not stale at that point. The reason for the arrest for the restraining order, again, is to enforce consequences. So the model for having a restraining order in place at the library is we will call the police and make a report every time this person, let's say it's a patron, shows up, um, comes in, tries to get in through the side door, the back door, the front door, causes a confrontation in the lobby, causes a confrontation in the parking lot, comes into the facility and threatens people, we will call the police every single time. The idea that we only call if the person is threatening, we only call if the person is violent, or only call if the person says you know certain kinds of words against, against somebody is not the right approach. We need to do it on a regular basis so that people know that that we can expect a, a, a continual response to this. We can, we can expect a, a response to this which is, is uniform and the same every time. And that the, the victim says, um, I have an expectation that the police are going to show up and do their job. That the library says we have an expectation the police are going to show up and do their job. And that the, vic the, the suspect will know that every time he or she makes contact with the organization or with the with the party that, that they're attempting to harm, that there's going to be a police call. When we look at those situations involving um, a restraining order with a patron, again, sometimes this is a last resort when the violation of code of conduct, you know, the previous number of security incident reports over and over again, has just not working. And sometimes we get people in the library that are mentally ill and just don't understand the restraining order process. They won't show up at the court hearing. The judge may, may grant the order, and you know we have a hard time getting it served, and it may not solve the problem. I, I've had a case in, in a library in California where the, the perpetrator had a multi, multiple restraining orders against him from a variety of different library systems, not all, not all the same library, around Los Angeles. And he would just show up all the time and cause all kinds of problems. The police never seemed to get there to be able to arrest him. And if they did, on an occasional basis, he would get out of jail and just come right back in. His mental illness was so severe that he just could not keep from confronting these people over and over and over again. This case lasted for about five years before he finally left the, left the area. So the restraining order as a tool for the toolkit is not a perfect solution for everything. It's not a bulletproof shield, but we have the most difficulty in those situations where the victim does not call the police or the victim library does not call the police, whether it's a, a library employee or a patron inside the library does not call the police each time to enforce the order. It has to, to be enforced, and it has to be, we have to make that phone call and make the police report. What, what we're trying to do is create a situation where the judge says, look, this person continues to be in contempt of my order, continues to be in violation of my order, and they step up and they issue a bench warrant for this person's arrest, and they're arrested and put in jail for a warrant for the number of times that they have violated the order. The best advice you can get from these situations, you can start with the local police department for sure, but, but the best advice oftentimes comes from your city attorney, your county council, your DA, your town attorney, whoever it is that provides legal services to your, to your city or your county through the library system, and they're the ones that are going to know about this. There's also something called a workplace, in, in some states, a workplace violence harassment order or workplace violence prevention order, which is similar to a restraining order, but it has a very specific part to it. In California, for example, the workplace harassment order is a civil code order where the, the community is, is, let's say the library community, is trying to get a workplace violence prevention order put in place against a person who has made workplace violence threats. It could be an ex-employee, it could be a patron, it could be a vendor, it could be some stranger. There's a lot of possibilities who the perpetrator could be. But the workplace violence prevention 
order is a specific restraining order where the victim, in this case, is not a domestic violence uh, victim or somebody who has been harmed or threatened by this person, which usually has to happen in most restraining orders. But the victim in this place is the library or the, or the city or the county in general. And so the library is represented at the court hearing by the town council, the town attorney, the city attorney, the district attorney, whoever it happens to be, and says, look, we need this workplace violence prevention order served on this person because of their workplace violence threats to the people that work there. So one of the issues there is, in sort of the days of old, is we didn't, when we didn't have the workplace violence prevention order, is that someone had to be fearful of this person in order for us to have the, the necessary fear of in great bodily injury or death to get the order in place. That's no longer necessary. It has to be one person. Now the organization can say, we are collectively in fear of violence from, from this person. That's why we need the order. Um, I'll give you an example. Let's say that the library director is threatened by a patron, and he or she says, I'm not worried about the guy. I think he's a jerk, and I'm not afraid of him. But the library director's staff is terrified of this guy. Well, who's the victim? Well, the staff is the victim, but they're not the ones that, that were threatened, so how are they on the restraining order? And vice versa. Let's say that the library director is terrified of this person who has made threats, and but the library staff is not afraid of the guy. And so in that case, the library director would be the victim. So we need, in a, in a usual restraining order, we need a victim. And it, it oftentimes can be the library director ceremonially that says, I will be the victim for everybody in the library who works there. And the workplace violence prevention order, the workplace violence harassment order, whatever we want to call it, um, the, the organization, not just the library director, but the organization can be the victim for these types of situations. So the need for a re restraining order is someone has to say, I'm in fear of my life, of great bodily injury or death to me or my family. If that's not in place and you're not able to articulate that to the judge, you say, well, he's obnoxious or he's a jerk or he, you know, he comes in and wastes our time, you're not going to get a restraining order. That's not what it's for. That's not, the, not, that's not what the, the order is for. Where we use restraining orders is those situations where someone says, this person has physically touched us, physically harmed us, threatened us with a weapon, threatened us in the parking lot, threatened us inside the library, or this person has threatened one of our employees in a stalking type of situation or threatened one of our employees in a domestic violence, uh, as a domestic violence perpetrator. Those situations where the person can say, yes, I'm in fear for my life, I'm in fear for my safety, I feel I'm in jeopardy if this person does not have the order enforced against them, that's where we have the best opportunity. The best way to prove to the judge that you need the restraining order is through security incident reports or police reports. Both of them, especially in combination, can be very useful. If we have copies of texts, photographs, let's say the person did damage to our library where they did vandalism or something like that. If we have screenshots of this person's um, text or emails, those types of things, if we can print out the emails, if we can verify or prove that the person did send the emails and not using an anonymous email address, something like that. Um, if we have videotapes of the person coming into the facility and threatening people, uh, we have uh, audio tapes of their phone calls or, or that type of threatening messages coming in. Those things can be very useful for the judge. Now the person on the, on the receiving end of the restraining order has to explain to the judge that he or she was just kidding or they've taken those things out of context or they didn't really mean it or they were angry at the time but they're not angry now to try to convince the judge that they don't need the restraining order. Now, the restraining order can be um, something that 
sort of trails after the person in terms of, of getting a gun or um, doing certain types of things because it can be, becomes part of the civil index and it may show up in a background check. So it's not something that somebody's going to want. And so judges usually have discretion in these cases to say, I'm going to believe the party between these two that are arguing about whether or not they need the restraining order as the one who's given me the most evidence and the most proof that there is a chance that violence could continue if this person is not restrained. So again, judges use discretion, they use their experience, they use what the lawyers have said to them. The person coming to the restraining order hearing as the person to be restrained can have a lawyer represent them or they can represent themselves if they want to. Uh, the cases that I have, have handled, the person that's come into court has usually not them, done themselves much of a service by you know, shouting at the judge or even threatening the person during the judge's, judge's um, um, hearing, which is not a great thing to do if you don't want the restraining order given upon you. So when I look at this situation, it's a rare thing to happen. Um, I talk about it sometimes with library directors as they're weighing the pros and cons of doing it. I oftentimes say that if you think the restraining order is going to make the situation worse, don't do it. If you think that the order is going to make the staff more vigilant about calling the police and that the police are going to show up and do their job and enforce the order and the consequences that are connected to the order, then get it. But it's not always a, a perfect solution because the person on the receiving end sometimes will say, I'll give you a reason to have a restraining order, and their behavior really escalates. And sometimes they go away and we never hear from them again. In my experience, the restraining order is not necessary in those situations where the person, let's say it's an ex-employee who made some sort of veiled threat on the way out of being fired. Uh, in those situations, we don't necessarily need the restraining order if the person has you know, moved to another state or we have knowledge that they're not, they're not um, connected to our organization or our town or anything anymore. They've, they're in a completely different you know, part of the community and they have no connection with us whatsoever. No need to get a restraining order. But it's very useful in especially high-risk domestic violence situations where the employee is fearful or in some cases the patron may be fearful. And it's very useful in situations where the library director have said, you know, we have tried everything in terms of enforcing consequences and boundaries for this particular person. It's not worked. We're going to get a restraining order. So that's my topic for this week, restraining orders and whether or not you should get one. The answer is a let's, let's, let's see, let's discuss, let's look at the context, let's look at the collection of security incident reports and police reports, and if it points to the need that you should get one because it is something that's going to help you enforce consequences, it's also a due diligence step. We don't think it's going to make the situation worse, then you should get one. So my thanks to the producer of the Library Safety and Security podcast, Steve Harganen. For more information, visit the Library 2.0 website at library20.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Steve Albrecht. Thanks for listening to the Library Safety and Security podcast.